Hi, I'm John. And I want to start by saying that even though I've been a pastor at High Rock for over 10 years now, I still consider it an amazing privilege to have this moment with you. I do not take your time and attention for granted, and I deeply hope that God will become more present to you because we are here together today. I have a question for you. For just a moment, consider how you tend to face difficult times, difficult people, and difficult situations in your life and in the world. And with all that in mind, I want to invite you to consider this question. Are you a hopeful person? Being hopeful isn't necessarily the same as being an optimist. It's not necessarily a glass half full versus half empty thing. Hope is deeper. Hope can acknowledge the darkness of the current moment while at the same time not let go of the conviction that things can get better. Hope can allow us to believe that what we do right now matters, even when our actions seem to make no difference in our situation. Perhaps perhaps most simply, hope is the willingness to get out of bed when it seems so much more appealing to pull the covers up over our heads and go back to sleep. Are you a hopeful person? Me, personally, I have a complicated relationship with hope. I want to be hopeful, but even more than that, I don't want to get played for a fool. And in my experience, hopeful people often get played. There's an ancient Greek myth you've probably heard about, Pandora's box. Pandora's box contained all kinds of evils, and when she opened it, these evils escaped into the human world, wreaking all kinds of suffering. At the last moment, Pandora was able to shut the box, trapping just one spirit in the box, a spirit called Hope. Phew. That was a close one. Thankfully, we didn't lose hope. There are various interpretations of this myth. The, The one I learned in grade school is that we should be thankful that Pandora did not let hope escape because humanity could not survive without hope. The situation is bad, but at least we didn't lose hope. End of story. But hold on a sec. I never thought that explanation made any sense. What was hope doing inside a box with all those other evil spirits? Why, you know, that didn't make sense. And and another thing, human beings only experienced these other spirits after they escaped Pandora's box. So if hope remained trapped in Pandora's box, we should not be able to experience it, right? So if hope is a good thing, shouldn't Pandora let it out rather than keeping it trapped in that box? And what is going on? On multiple levels, the story just didn't make sense to me. And for such a famous story to not make sense, shouldn't that make us just a little curious? Well, it turns out that most Greek myths had various versions, and the one we usually hear comes from a Greek poet named Hesiod. And apparently, he did think that hope was a bad thing. I knew it! If hope had escaped from Pandora's box, then it truly would have been the ultimate evil inflicted upon humanity. But why was Hesiod such a hater when it came to hope? Well, later in that same poem, the poet says that hope is empty and that it makes people lazy, just giving up rather than working for a better future. In other words, the hope that remains trapped in Pandora's box is something more like wishful thinking or maybe even false hope, a kind of empty optimism that just believes comforting fantasies rather than face the truth. Now that made sense to me. 
If that kind of false hope had been unleashed upon the world, then we really would be in trouble. We would just wish and fantasize and believe comforting lies rather than face the harsh realities of the world. When I came to understand Pandora's box in that way, wow, it really made sense to me. This Hesiod guy was on to something. Wishful thinking? Unfounded hope? Those are like security blankets that give us no security at all. Better to face reality, right? I mean, I wanted to trust people. I wanted to be hopeful. But in my experience growing up, people will use that kind of hope to play you for a fool. The most anyone was going to get out of me was trust but verify. But it goes further than that. To my mind, hope was downright dangerous. When I was in high school, my dad moonlighted as a security guard at the local hospital. He brought home all kinds of stories, especially about the emergency room. When violent or disturbed patients came in, they would call security for assistance. I especially remember my dad telling me about people on drugs who came in with broken bodies because they thought they could fly. They would climb out their windows, reach for the sky, and end up flat on the pavement. They were sincere in their beliefs, committed enough to take action, but wishful thinking and unfounded hope are no match for hard reality. I found these stories especially disturbing because I used to have a terrible fear of heights. I stayed far away from drugs, which I guess was my dad's point. But I didn't just stay away from drugs. I kept hope at a distance too. I'd rather stick with what I can know for certain and leave hope for people who like to get hurt. That hurt and disappointment was the motivation underneath all my philosophical questions. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me, right? Well, that's my story when it comes to hope. What about you? Maybe you didn't fear walking out a window to the pavement below, but maybe you're concerned about other dangerous places where unfounded hope may lead. Some of you hoped in another person, someone you thought you could trust. Some of you have put your hopes in a dream that turned out to be a disappointment or just a lie. Or maybe you hoped in an institution, like a school or a workplace with a great mission and vision, or even your church. At first, it was a hope that filled you with security and significance, but along the way, it failed to deliver what you had been hoping for. Perhaps you felt that way about Jesus. Perhaps there was a time when the grace and truth of Jesus filled your life with hope and purpose, but now you're still holding on, but you're not sure if you want to believe in anything or anyone that deeply anymore. Hope can be a great thing, but hope had better be real or reality is going to hit you hard. Hoping in something that isn't real is nothing more than hype. The line in the Apostles' Creed to which we turn today focuses on the central hope of the Christian faith. It all comes down to this. The third day he rose again from the dead. According to the Bible, all of our hope is tied up into this one historical event. Either it's true or it isn't. And if it isn't true, then nothing else matters. In our lives and in the story of Pandora's box, one of the worst things that can happen is to hold on to false hope. I love how Paul addresses this crisis of false hope in our scripture today. 
And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. The Apostle Paul makes a very simple point here. If Christ was not raised from the dead, then Christianity is one of the biggest lies ever to be foisted on the human race. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then we are liars, false witnesses. Not only that, our faith is futile. When this life is over, it is just that, over. Investing everything in a future that will never come, that's just sad. Have we fallen victim to hype? Or is our faith based on hope? When I became a Christian as a young adult, this question was central for me. I shared my story a few weeks ago in this series. I was willing to believe, but only if it was true. If you threw me into the matrix, I would choose the red pill every time. I prayed to God, God, if you're really there, Jesus, if you really are God, then show me. That prayer started a four-year search that led me to become a follower of Jesus. One of my brothers was in shock. He whispered, you are the last person I would ever expect. My friend Joe, who had known me from when we were little kids, he too was in shock when he found out, not because of what I said, but because of how much I had changed. He always thought that I would end up as a criminal. So how did I go from a person who desperately did not want to be played for a fool to someone who was willing to bet my life on Christ? I want to share with you briefly some of the questions and discoveries that have been critical in my journey. In our current series on the Apostles' Creed, we talk about going beyond belief. In sharing some of what I've discovered, my hope is that we can all step beyond belief in our heads to a conviction that we're willing to live out, even at great risk or cost. I don't pretend to have found proof for our hope. Instead, I want to offer reasons for hope. Certainly not the only reasons, but the reasons that were most meaningful to me and hopefully will be meaningful to some of you as well. We're going to take a look at three E's so it's easier to remember and carry with you into your day. The first reason to hope is the in the resurrection of Christ is the empty tomb. It might be surprising to hear that as far as the empty tomb goes, most historians now agree that the gospel accounts are reliable even though they differ in detail. I remember when Julia Sweeney was on her Letting Go of God tour, the title of not only a live show but a book that she had written to describe her spiritual journey to atheism after the death of her brother. One Christian interviewer asked her if she had considered any of the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And her only response was shock that anyone would even suggest that there could be evidence. I mean, wasn't the resurrection just an article of blind faith? Many people share that assumption, and to some extent, I used to as well. Michael Grant was a classical historian, especially of the Roman period, a man who considered himself a skeptic when it came to matters of faith. But in his historical investigation of Jesus, he writes, True, the discovery of the empty tomb is differently described by the various Gospels. But if we apply the same sort of criteria that we would apply to any other ancient literary sources, then the evidence is firm and plausible enough to necessitate the conclusion that the tomb was indeed found empty. If the tomb was empty, 
the question naturally arises, what happened to the body? What's interesting here is that early Jewish opponents of this new Jewish sect called Christianity all presuppose an empty tomb. The question was always, what happened to the body? Their theory was that the disciples stole the body, but no one doubted that the tomb was empty. So did the disciples steal the body? It doesn't seem very likely. I mean, first there were the Roman guards present, but also there were the disciples who ended up dying as martyrs and the other was in prison. Why would they suffer through repeated imprisonment and beatings if they had stolen the body? And these were the same disciples that ran away in terror just a few days before. Peter denied he even knew Jesus. If the disciples stole the body, it was a lie that gained them nothing except poverty and hardship and cost them everything, including their lives. Still, an empty tomb by itself is not much of an argument. Proving that the body is missing is a far cry from proving that it came back to life. For that, we move on to the second E, eyewitnesses. In the same chapter that we read, but just a bit earlier, the Apostle Paul says this, I passed on to you what was most important and what had been also passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scriptures said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. He was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. For I am the least of all the apostles. In fact, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle after the way I persecuted God's church. This entire passage is understood by scholars to be an early Christian creed, perhaps a direct precursor to the Apostles' Creed. Given the timeline of events, Paul, have, Paul would have had to receive this tradition somewhere between 32 and 38 AD, almost immediately after the actual events. Three things about the witnesses he mentioned. First, be, you know, but beyond the 12 apostles, Paul appeals to these 500 witnesses. Classical historians note that it is common for myth and legend to creep into historical accounts, but only after at least two or three generations have passed, usually after all the original witnesses have died. But Paul mentions that most of the, these witnesses were still alive and could be questioned directly. Don't believe me? Ask them yourself. A second note about these witnesses is the mention of James. This James is the half-brother of Jesus. James did not believe in Jesus while Jesus was alive. Apparently, his relatives thought he was crazy. James did not become a believer until after the crucifixion, apparently because Jesus made a special visit to him. I like to imagine that James might have rejected Jesus because he hated being constantly compared to him. I wonder if Mary ever said, why can't you be more like your brother? But after Jesus was raised from the dead, James saw everything differently. He was so transformed by that encounter that he later became the leader of the church at Jerusalem and died as a martyr. This incredible turnaround by James thus becomes a special kind of witness to the reality of Jesus' resurrection. In addition to the 500 and to James, a third eyewitness to consider is the Apostle Paul himself. 
Paul was a high-powered intellectual who was trained by one of the most prominent rabbis of his day. He was so fervent in his faith that he hunted down Christians. So what changed him from a persecutor into a preacher? It was because he encountered the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus. Paul went from killing Christians to giving up his own life to bring people to Christ. Now, at this point, one might argue, you know, well, this is all well and good, but can we really trust what the Bible has to say about Jesus? And that was certainly my question as I was searching for the truth. But thankfully, there are accounts outside the Bible that can corroborate important details for us. And this brings us to our last E, and it's the one I've been taking a growing, uh, growing interest in lately. This last E is extra-biblical accounts. Tacitus, an ancient Roman historian, notes Emperor Nero's blaming of Christians for the Rome fire, mentioning Christ's execution under Pontius Pilate and a persistent belief in resurrection. Thallus and Phlegon, other Roman historians, confirm the darkness during the crucifixion. Ancient Jewish writings like the Talmud offer interesting insights. Joseph Klausner, a Jewish scholar, outlined these ancient rabbinic sources' claims about Jesus, including his name, the supposed practice of sorcery, his challenge of traditions, and the crucifixion. Remarkably, these and other extra-biblical sources, some adversarial to Christianity, point or paint a vivid picture of Jesus. He was a real person from Nazareth, known for miracles and followed by many. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate, accompanied by darkness and an earthquake. His death spurred more followers, asserting his resurrection, his messianic status, and divinity. Details all not reliant on the Bible. As I searched to see if Jesus, and especially the resurrection, was more hope than hype, these are some of the places that my search led me. The empty tomb, the eyewitnesses, and the extra-biblical accounts were key factors in why I began to trust that there was a foundation to my growing faith, that it wasn't just a blind kind of hope. Now, I know that some of you are not really asking these questions, but I know that some of you are, and I hope that what I found in my search might be helpful to you as well. If you are a follower of Jesus, I hope you'll be encouraged that your hope is not hype. It is a hope based on reality. I hope that you will be encouraged to move beyond, beyond mere belief to conviction, to trust Jesus in ways that will lead you to take bigger risks, to make greater sacrifices, to serve the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. But if you're not sure what you believe, or if you are a seeker like I was, or even if you are a skeptic, I hope you will continue to investigate. Jesus was not afraid of questions and honest doubt, and we desperately want to be a church that is not afraid either. Honesty and curiosity are foundational values at High Rock. Any honest question deserves a discussion. My encouragement to us all is that I believe that there are answers to be found, so don't be afraid to ask and to seek. In my faith journey, I have been filled with hope because I saw that my questions were welcomed and encouraged. I found life because there were spiritual communities like this one where we could journey and discuss and live out our faith and questions together. One more story. There was a professional debate between Anthony Flew, 
an atheist philosopher from Oxford, and Gary Habermas, a New Testament scholar. It was a public debate moderated and judged by five professional debate judges. The topic was the resurrection. When I first heard about this debate, I didn't know Gary Habermas, the New Testament scholar, but I knew Anthony Flew. He was required reading in any philosophy of religion class. He was the central champion of atheism amongst philosophers. By the time the debate was over, four out of the five judges voted for Habermas, who argued for the resurrection. The other judge abstained, calling the debate a draw. One judge summed it up this way, quote, I was left with this conclusion, since the case against the resurrection was no stronger than that presented by Anthony Flew, I would think it was time that I began to take the resurrection seriously, end quote. As I said, I hadn't heard of Gary Habermas before then, but I certainly took an interest in him, in, in him after this. Eventually, I came across a more personal connection. Gary lost his own wife to cancer under circumstances that were very similar to the way my wife lost her own mother to cancer. Gary and his wife Debbie went to the doctor because she had become sick, and four months later, she was gone from stomach cancer. In the midst of caring for his sick and dying wife, and caring for their four young children, and figuring out how he was possibly going to carry on without her, Gary began to have his own moment of questioning like Job. Sitting on the porch for a moment of rest and contemplating his shattered life, he kept asking God, why is Debbie upstairs dying at age 43? And eventually he heard, or imagined he heard, a reply. But the reply was not an answer. God was asking a question. Did I raise my son from the dead? But God, what about, did I raise my son from the dead? But God, how am I going to, did I raise my son from the dead? The resurrection of Jesus is not just an academic debate or philosophical question. It is the bedrock of a hope that can transform how we live and even how we face death itself. Gary Habermas, one of the foremost experts on the historical resurrection, was forced to make a choice. Did he believe just in his head or did he believe in his heart and with his life? He had all the reasons he needed, but he still needed to make a choice. Could he live in the hope of the resurrection and mean it while his wife Debbie was slipping away upstairs? As the creed puts it, the third day he rose again from the dead. Is that a hope that you can build your life on? Or is it just hype that will fail you when it matters most? If death is not the end of the story, you might be able to hold on when everything seems lost or appears to fall apart. If death is not the final word, then you can face the moment that calls for courage and sacrifice, knowing that God will make things right in the end. If life is more than this all-too-brief interlude, then maybe we can find meaning and hope, despite the loss of something or someone we thought we could not live without. Gary shared about a specific card amongst the many that people gave him. It was the last card he put away after Debbie died. The card said, How are you going to feel walking down the streets of heaven, hand in hand with your wife?
When he read that card, it hit him so hard that he thought he was going to die. He could not repeat those words for a year after his wife passed. But during that time, Gary pictured God saying to him, Gary, you've got some deep waters to go through, but one day you and Debbie will be in the kingdom together with us, and it will be a glorious time. I can't explain it all right now, but just keep that truth ever before you. Are you a hopeful person? I'm not, and I don't claim to be, but God is changing me. I believe that Jesus was raised on the third day, and because he was raised from the dead, there is hope for me and for all of us. It's the foundation of the hope I find when facing life's hardest challenges and disappointments. This life is not all there is, and death is not the final word. Jesus is the final word. That is our hope. He is our hope. In the face of such challenges, a helpful practice might be the Welcome Jesus Welcome Prayer that you can find in Adele Calhoun's Spiritual Disciplines Handbook. It's a simple prayer and it goes like this. Um, perhaps you can say it silently or whisper it along with me. You could even screenshot it and keep it in your phone or, you know, for when those, those times when you're going to need it. And it goes like this. Jesus, I release my need to feel safe and secure. Welcome, Jesus. Welcome. Jesus, I release my need to be accepted and approved. Welcome, Jesus. Welcome. Jesus, I release my need to control this person or event. Welcome, Jesus. Welcome. Jesus, I release my need to change reality, but accept it as it is. Welcome, Jesus. Welcome. Amen and amen. Remember when I told you that moving beyond belief and into the, a lived conviction was the hope of this series? We're going to take time to practice holding on to the hope of Christ together now. We'll start by naming the things we've held on to besides Jesus for hope and being reminded of our true hope in Christ. For our careers or our marriages or our families or our abilities, all gifts from you, God, but not our true source of hope. For peace between the nations, for the uplift of the poor, for the care of your creation. All things you desire, God, but not our true source of hope. You, O oh God, are our hope. Your love made flesh in Jesus Christ will never leave us or forsake us. Thank you for this gift. Remind us of that, of that truth this week. We are sorry for losing sight of true hope in you, Jesus. In this broken and war-torn world, may we not lose hope. Let us not become complacent in our hope, but give us the strength to actively engage in bringing your hope to others. Give us listening ears, noticing eyes, compassionate hearts, open hands, so that we might see hope and carry through our ordinary days. May we find our hope in you and share that hope with others. Friends, know that it is through the hope in Jesus Christ that you are forgiven and invited to live in hope today and every day. Amen.